0: It's always good to be back together to study the Word of God uh, with you. It is a privilege to open the Bible together. I, I was reminded this week of the great privilege that we have to freely study the Bible together. From time to time I get emails from a ministry called China Vision. Jason Bebo has talked about it. From time to time I went over to China under the China Mission organization. They seem to regularly contain in those letters information about the ever-increasing difficulty it is for our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in China to gather as Christians together. And each time I get one of those letters, it causes me to think about the privileged place in which God, by His mercy and His sovereign grace, has allowed us to live how we have the freedom, at least right now, according to God's mercy and according to God's grace, we have the freedom to come together and to open our Bibles together and see what God has for us as we study. We have that privilege. So it's great to be here with all of us together, to open our Bibles together One of the greatest sounds that I wish I could record someday and just have it as a loop or maybe a ringtone is the pages opening up of the Bible. And I pray that we don't ever take that privilege for granted, that we as a church, that we as a people, that we as a Christian don't ever take the privilege for granted and neglect it for the frivolous. Let's not be a people who arbitrarily forsake the assembling together. Let's be a people that takes these God-given moments as a profound privilege given to us by God in a special way, a way that He has designed for us to receive from Him in a special way what is for our collective and individual good. So with that in our minds, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. It's obvious that we are now entering into a new section of the gospel that we find in Romans, a new portion of this great epistle. And it begins in chapter 9 and it goes all the way through to the end of chapter 11. And that means that chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapters 11 drive at the same theme, the same overarching theme. And that theme is, as you noticed in your bulletin, as of I, I have entitled this message, which will be our title for the series of the next several months. So you can just write that at to the top of your page, it's not going to change. I don't know how many parts it will be, maybe it will be 50, who knows, but it's going to be many. And The title is this, The Justification of God's Ways with All Men. The Justification of God's Ways with Mankind or with All Men. We have heard much already in our study of the book of Romans about the way of salvation and about the way of absolute security of that salvation by means of being in Jesus Christ. And now, Paul is transitioning to the justification of God's ways in his dealing with all of mankind in reference to salvation. This morning, I want to simply just gain an overview, uh, a higher-altitude picture, if you will, of these three chapters, of what is to come for us in these chapters, and often what is known as a controversial section of the book of Romans. It's good for us to do that, I think, as we enter into a new section of Scripture so that we don't get lost as we walk through the trees in the glorious forest that God is walking us through. Sometimes when you get so close to the trees, you forget the overall view of where where you're heading, and we need to do that from time to time. I want to highlight the reality that there are doctrinal truths here in this section. That sounds rather obvious probably to many of us, but it is not apparently obvious to some within evangelicalism. I say there are doctrinal truths because as you read some of the commentators in your own studies, if you pick up commentaries on the book of Romans and you read through them, you will find that some of them say that the doctrinal teaching of Romans ends at chapter 8. So that when you come to chapters 9 through 11, what you get is simply, they will say, a parenthetical look at God's dealing with the future of Israel and the future of the Jews. Now you need to know that I, as one of your pastors, reject that idea. But that is Paul's drive here. I reject that. Why? Well, first, let me just say that it is true that Paul is finished with his treatment of the doctrine of salvation. You say, well, wait a minute, you just contradict yourself. No, I didn't. Watch this. Paul is finished with his treatment of the doctrine of salvation, but only as it pertains to our perspective of the doctrine of salvation. In other words, salvation from our perspective. In other words, what we have heard thus far concerning salvation by the Apostle Paul all the way beginning back in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8 was from the perspective of us as individual believers. Paul was dealing with the doctrine of salvation, soteriology in the big scheme of a theological term. Paul was dealing with all of that, but from the perspective of us as believers. We have heard about our personal guilt before God because of sin. We have heard of and learned about our justification by faith alone as a gracious gift from God. We have found great joy in the fact of our eternal security by being united with Jesus Christ. And as many of you came up to me even last Lord's Day as we dealt with the whole doctrine of perseverance or the doctrine of God's preservation, we we we've all together taken this collective breath of relief in hearing that our perseverance in the faith actually has nothing to do with us trying to persevere in the faith. It has everything to do with God preserving us in the faith. It is not us holding on to Christ because we love Christ. It is God, because of His love for us in Christ, holding on to us we have found out the glorious truth that thankfully the perspective of some in reference to the perseverance of the saints is not true because God is holding to us and that's why we will persevere in the faith. All of those doctrinal truths we have learned concerning us as individual believers. But when you come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, And the difference between these chapters with chapters 3 through 8, we see that now as Paul is dealing with the doctrine of salvation in a more general way. In a more general way when it comes to mankind. In other words, Paul is still teaching in reference to the doctrine of salvation. But rather than having us think about it in reference to how we individually get saved, now he is helping us to see the justification of God's overall purpose in reference to man in general when it comes to salvation, which includes both Jews and non-Jews. We might even say that this is an inevitable direction for Paul to go in his writing. You might say, well, why would Paul do that? Paul has talked a lot about salvation already. Why would Paul find it necessary To do that, I think it's an inevitable direction for Paul to go in light of what he has already taught. Because the potential difficulty that some will have with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Paul has to go this direction in chapters 9, 10, and 11 because the difficulty people have with the doctrine of election or as I said it before, the sovereignty of God in salvation. You say, how so? Well, we know that Paul has already said to us in verse 28 of chapter 8, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is a statement concerning the sovereignty of God over all things. That God is sovereign over everything. In other words, it was and is God's eternal purpose in all things, for his children specifically, but in all things in general, but for us specifically, it is God's eternal purpose in all of those things that guarantees our final preservation as Christians. In other words, if God isn't sovereign, We have no chance of continuing in the faith. But because God is sovereign, because His eternal purposes are intact, and He does work all things for the good of those to love Him, then our final preservation as Christians all the way to glorification is an absolute guarantee. That's a massive statement about the sovereignty of God. And we saw that reality clearly delineated, clearly explained to us in verses 29 and 30, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So that is simply to say that the purpose of God for you as one of his children That is to be conformed to the image of a son. That's his purpose. He ordained it in eternity past and he has carried it out and is still carrying it out in time. In other words, he elected you in the past and he is carrying out that sovereign choice upon you that he placed upon you simply because he loved and he chose to love. He is carrying that out in time so that you one day fully reach glorification. He elected you. Shows you. That's God's purpose for each of his children, and it is certain, because God loves us in Christ. Therefore, as we learned last time, there is no thing and there is no one in heaven or in hell, nor is there any other created place or created thing that could ever separate us from that purposed love. And so what we have learned thus far is that because of who God is, because of the very nature, because of the very character of God, because of who God is, because he cannot change, our salvation is absolute. That includes our transformation into Christ's likeness. It is an absolute guarantee. Philippians 1, verse 6, what he began, he will complete. It is certain all the way into and throughout all eternity. Why? Because God is who he is and because God chose. And since we know our Bibles, then I am sure in your own head right now warning lights are going off. As you think about the unchangeableness doctrinal truth, The unchangeableness of God, the immutability of God, that God is absolutely unchangeable, and therefore if God has guaranteed our salvation and the salvation of all those whom he's chose to the very end, then you have lights going off in your mind, warning lights off in your mind. Why? Because the same God that saves us according to his unchangeable character is the same God of the Old Testament, who chose the Jews to be his own. And Paul anticipates that somebody's going to say, Paul, what's wrong with you? Have you forgotten the Jews? Have you forgotten your own Jewishness, Paul? You say... According to your Christian gospel, you say that when God starts something, He always finishes it. You say that nothing can thwart God's purpose. You say that nothing whatsoever could ever get in the way of God's purpose. That He will complete it. But, if that's true, as you're preaching, as you're teaching, as you're proclaiming, Paul, if that's true in this so-called Christian gospel as you claim it to be, then isn't it logically true also that God's purpose has a serious problem? You say what problem is that? Because the fact of the, the fact of the matter is that a majority of the Jews are not Christians at all. Is fact isn't it true that most Christians today are non- So where is the purpose of God with them? Where is his unchangeableness in that, Paul? After all, God certainly promised to them, and yet it seems that it didn't and hasn't happened with them. You must be wrong, Paul. You must have forgotten the Old Testament. The forgotten the Old Testament. Can you, can you kind of get a glimpse in your own mind as to why the Jews don't want you to talk about the New Testament with them? I trust you can see the dilemma. Maybe there is even somebody here today contemplating in your own mind and saying the same thing. You say that we're secure because of who God is, because of the very character of God and because of what He has promised to us. But have you forgotten about Israel? If the purpose of God is unchangeable, as we have heard from chapters 3 to chapter 8, what Paul is preaching and what I am here teaching this morning, then doesn't that contradict the truth of God's promises to the Jews in the Old Testament? is saying that as New Testament Christians, we must have abandoned the Old Testament in our thinking. We must have abandoned it. Because if that's the same God and the Old Testament is primarily about the Jews, then aren't we making this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? Aren't we making the doctrine of election and preservation and pre destination aren't we declaring as truth what is actually a contradiction of the purposes of God since God in the Old Testament promised to Israel his choice of them yet we have seen that they have rejected Christ you see that's the dilemma that's what Paul is facing That's what Paul's thinking through as he's written this letter. He knows that those to whom he is writing aren't fully convinced concerning election and predestination. They're not convinced about those doctrines. He knows that the doctrine of justification by faith and the doctrine of God's divine election cuts right across everything that is believed concerning the Jews. We might even say it cuts across every human heart. The doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination cuts across the human heart at every level. After all, the Jews, weren't they God's people because they kept the law? Because they were circumcised? And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that's what we're talking about when we say Gentiles, non-Jews, they, they didn't have any of that on their side. Paul said they're guilty, chapters 1 to 3. He said that justification comes by faith alone, chapter 4 and 5. He said that you can't let sin reign since you are saved, chapter 6, and you can't negate the law since you're saved, chapter 7. And now this, that God, who does all that, is preserving his own to the very end, and he'll complete that work in the end? All of that is very hard to accept, especially when you think of the Jews. Because if God always carries out his plan to the end, then what about the Jews? If the Christian gospel is true, what about the Jews? And so when you come to chapters 9 through 11, Paul is harmonizing the Old Testament with the New Testament. All that God has said and all that God has shown through the Old Testament, He is still doing and it's harmonized perfectly with what is coming and what He is going to do. So what we are seeing in chapters 9 through 11 is that though some of God's purposes may seem contradictory, though some of God's purposes may seem contradictory, the reality is... They are not a contradiction at all. God's purpose is still absolute for his people. Nothing is going to change that. He is still being consistent with himself, still being consistent according to his very nature. Now, that has implications. That has implications as we think that. You know what that means when we think about this. This is at least an initial thought, initial implication of that reality of who God is. That means that God is still God and God does not change. And most importantly is this, God is not us. I believe that that truth is clear to us. When you go to the end of chapter 11. Let's turn over to the end of chapter 11. We see this reality that God is not us. Verse 33 to the end. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him, that's the origin, and through Him, that's everything in between, and to Him, that's the goal, all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, one of the great implications Of those four verses is the fact that we must realize that God is not like us. God is not like us. He does not act like us. He does not operate on the same plane as we operate. He does not think like us at all. And that is the end result that Paul is driving at for us to learn. That's the end result that he's driving at for us to live by in a practical way according to the salvation that we have in Christ. When we struggle with the parts of the doctrine of salvation, when we struggle with the different aspects that go into the doctrine like regeneration and and election and perseverance and sanctification and all these aspects of the doctrine of salvation, when we struggle with those kinds of things, when they grade upon our sense of fairness, God doesn't think or operate like us at all. The sense of fairness that seems to exist within the heart of humanity is the foolishness of humanity. It is the fallen principle within the heart of man, this idea of fairness. That is our plane of operation in humanity when we think of salvation. That's where we come at it. God doesn't think on our plane. God doesn't operate on our plane. We say, God, you must save everybody or it's just not fair. That's the question. We even discussed it this morning in the Sunday School Class Members Group. Why people ask the question, if why is it that God will allow people to die seemingly unjustly? It's the same question, just from the other side. God, you must save everybody, or it's just not fair. And if for some reason you don't, then your words about your unchangeableness are actually just not true. You see, Paul through 11, he's dealing with that weakness in all of us. That weakness in us is just simply being fallen human beings. That tendency in our heart to question God's purposes with all men when it comes to salvation. That's the overall theme. That's the overall essence at which Paul is driving at in these chapters. That's why I've entitled this section The Justification of God's Ways with Man. So what kind of then sub-themes are we going to see as we unfold this text together, as we walk through these chapters? What are we going to see? Let's list a few of them for us in the time we have left. First, we are going to see Under this reality of the justification of God for all men, we are going to see the tragedy of the Jewish rejection of Christ. The tragedy of the Jewish rejection of Christ. That's the majority of chapter 9. The tragedy at which the Jews currently have rejected the Messiah. Paul is acutely saddened by this reality. Verses 1 to 3. He said, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that even I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul is acutely saddened by the reality of their rejection. Probably first and foremost because he himself is a Jew. In fact, you may have noticed in your own reading of these chapters in the past that Paul begins each one of them with his own personal concern for his countrymen. We just saw it in chapter 9, right? He says, "I, I, I have this issue going on even in my own conscience, this reality, this unceasing pain in myself for my brethren in my own heritage. Go over to chapter 10, In the beginning verses, my brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. I, I, this is my burden, this is what's my heart, this is where I'm at. I'm so concerned with them. I have this pain within me that they would know Christ. Chapter 11. I say then, God hasn't rejected His people, has He? He's talking about the Jews. At the beginning of each chapter, Paul Paul has this. His mind is just riveted by the reality of what God has done in the Old Testament. What God is doing with his own people, and he's, he's got an anguish in his heart in reference to them. I, too, am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, chapter 11. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God hasn't rejected his people whom he foreknew. We can see that Paul tells us over and over again of what the Jews have been promised. What his spiritual concern is for them. Their rejection of the Messiah is acutely on the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's the first thing that we see is a sub-theme that goes through this as Paul deals with this whole idea and overarching reality of the justification of God. But then secondly, secondly, Paul is going to teach us of the reality of the absolute sovereignty of, of God in the matter of election. The absolute sovereignty of God in this whole matter of election. Chapters 9, verse 19 and following. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Paul's laying that hypothetical question out before his own people. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? That's just what I was saying earlier. God isn't like you. God doesn't think like you. God doesn't act like you. God doesn't do what he does because he operates on the same plane as you. Who are you to think you can answer back to God? That's why I read Psalm 73 this morning. <laughs> it, it may look from our vision that things are going wrong, that things are worse, that it seems like things are all upside down, and yet from God's perspective, everything's just as he's planned it, right according to his nature thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Doesn't the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump of one vessel for honor and another for common use? You see, Paul's just saying, listen, God is sovereign in election. He has an absolute sovereignty in this matter. Because of who God is, he has a right to call whomever he wishes to salvation. That's the idea. doesn't matter if it's a Jew or a Gentile. In other words, God is free in election. God is free in election. He is uncondemnable when it comes to election. We might even say it's unjustified to blame God for not saving all people. It's unjustified to blame God for not saving all people. So first, there are the rejectors, And secondly, God is free to elect whom he does. The third theme that's going to come out over time in our study is the Christian teaching that salvation is for both Jew and non-Jew. The Christian teaching That salvation is for both non-Jew and Jew alike is all throughout the Old Testament. And we're going to see that as we go through. All of those sub-themes, I think this one is probably the most important. Why? Because the Jews and the Pharisees were experts in the Old Testament. They were experts in the Old Testament and people were always accusing Paul of disregarding the Old Testament when he taught the Christian gospel. Saying this very same thing, this hypothetical reality that, that I drew up earlier that Paul is always being accused of, that he has just disregarded the Old Testament in order to preach what he preaches about Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, in essence, I'm not disregarding the Old Testament at all. In fact, I'll prove to you that what I'm talking about is from the Old Testament. So he justifies what he's saying. And he justifies it in the language and the terminology of the Old Testament. He shows that far from contradicting the Old Testament, the Christian doctrine of salvation by faith alone, according to God's choosing alone, is actually in accord with the Old Testament. In fact, If you've been looking carefully at chapters 9, 10, and 11, you may have noticed that Paul quotes the Old Testament 30 times in 90 verses. One-third of the time is the Old Testament being quoted in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He quotes it in chapter 9, verse 12 and 13. He quotes it in chapter 9, verse 15, and verse 17. He quotes it in chapter... 9 verse 25 through 29 he quotes it in verse 33 that means in chapter 9 he quotes the old testament 10 times 10 times concerning the reality of the rejection of the Jews or the rejection of of the Messiah by the Jews and then in chapter 10 it's quoted he quotes the old testament in verses 6 through 8 in verse 11 in verse 13 in verse 15 through 16 in verses 18 through 21 that's 11 times, he quotes the Old Testament in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, he quotes it another nine times. Verses three through four, verses eight through 10, verses 26 through 27, verse 34 through 35. Thirty times. Paul, why? Because Paul wants to prove. Paul wants to prove that God, in dealing with his purposes with all men, that it comes not simply from the Christian doctrine in the New Testament that some might wrongly call it, but it is a biblical doctrine. It is Old Testament and New Testament alike. And then there's a fourth theme. There's a fourth theme that we'll study, and that is this. That's the danger, the danger of coming to a false conclusion about the purposes of God based upon what the Old Testament says concerning the Jews. Let me say that again. The danger of coming to a false conclusion or a wrong conclusion about the purposes of God based upon what the Old Testament does say about the Jews. This is the very reason that many of the Jews have rejected Jesus Christ. Because they have come to false conclusions about God's purposes concerning them. So Paul warns the non-Jew of that same danger. He warns you and I. Notice chapter 11. Beginning in verse 11, I say then, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if the transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And Paul says clearly, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. That's you and I. I'm speaking to the non-Jew here. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. Because if their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul is warning us not to come to the wrong conclusions, to have a false understanding, a false conclusion about God's purposes with the Jews from a wrong understanding of the Old Testament. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. You be careful with your understanding of your own salvation. That's what he's saying. Don't get the idea that you are somehow better than the Jew because God saved you. Don't get the idea in your mind, don't let it sink in your heart, don't let it be anywhere in your own understanding in your Christian life that somehow God saved you because you were saved. Don't come to that wrong conclusion about God's choosing of you. You are not more special than anybody else. And on top of that, don't think that just because God saved you and that now because you're in Christ you're secure and it's true that you are secure, don't think that you can just go on living any way you want. Don't abuse merciful glorious truth concerning your salvation that's exactly what some of the Jews thought about God with them they were the chosen people of God God had told them so you're not better than anybody else God had said that to them I chose you simply because I loved you but they thought about that and they said it doesn't matter how we live we're the chosen of God Not so. And so, if you have ever thought that we understand God's mind and we understand God's purposes and thereby we abuse it, and I trust that very doctrinal section is going to help us think again. It's going to help readjust our thinking. And so in each chapter, Paul identifies himself with the Jews as we've already alert, alert, alluded to in the first verses of each chapter, Paul identifies himself with the Jews, and then Paul elaborates doctrine. He elaborates doctrine. The main doctrine of chapter 9 is predestination and election. That's what he elaborates. These are the people I love. I'm acutely sorrowful about them. You've got to understand something. God is a, a God of election. And that's going to challenge us. I'm telling you, it's going to challenge us to think through it in connection not only with ourselves, but with the Jews. And then the main doctrine that we see in chapter 10 is justification by faith alone. That's clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. As I've said, Paul quotes the Old Testament more in chapter 10 than any of the other two chapters. And then the main doctrine of chapter 11 is the temporary rejection of the Jews. The temporary rejection of the Jews, that God might cause those called of the Jews to return to Him as Savior. So Paul begins each one of these chapters, and he identifies himself with the Jews, then he lays out doctrine, quoting the Old Testament, and then he confirms that doctrine with the old testament. And so we find at the end of each chapter Paul quoting notice from the old testament at the end of every chapter is a old testament quote. Chapter 9, behold i lay in zion a stone of stumbling a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The end of chapter 10 He gives us three verses of Old Testament quote. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. chapter 11, or who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again see at the end of every chapter Paul goes right back to the Old Testament and all throughout Paul quotes the Old Testament and at the beginning Paul identifies himself with his people he hasn't forgotten the Old Testament at all The Old Testament undergirds it all. It's really a masterful argumentation of the justification of God's purpose with all men. Masterful. So I don't want us to miss the forest as we walk through the trees of these chapters. God has not changed. He has not changed. His purpose is still intact. His purpose is to conform all whom He's chosen into the likeness of His Son. He cannot and He will not fail. He will save all of those whom He has set His divine love upon, both Jew and non-Jew. Not one, as Jesus Christ says in John 17, not one perishes. Why? Why? Because for from him, verse 36 of chapter 11, and through him and to him are all things. God is sovereign over it all. Sovereign in uh, choosing us, sovereign in saving us, sovereign in keeping us. To him be the glory. The, glory. the exclamation point of our entire study when we go from 9 to 11 is that very phrase. To him be the glory forever and ever. Not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but unto you belong all praise and glory. That's Paul's point. Is it any wonder at the end of it when he gets to chapter 12 He says, in light of all of this, I urge you, I can't say it strong enough, I urge you, by the mercy of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable. Why? Because this is your spiritual service of worship. This is how you worship. Chapter 12 all the way through chapter 16, we get one chapter after another of how it is we are to live in this glorious salvation that God has given us in Christ. I trust that we'll be excited about it. I trust that we'll take the privilege that we have of opening the word of God together and not, as I said, frivolously just foregoing it for the sake of some Frivolous opportunity. Let's be here. Let's study together. Let's encourage one another. Let's exhort one another to love and good deeds in these things as we study together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for just this brief look, really. A quick overview of these chapters. Lord, we know the chapter numbers are not, uh, they're not, there by you. You didn't put them there. But they help us. They help us. We're thankful that men over time chose to give us this way to be able to to categorize and catalog and to keep track of all that you are saying. Lord, thank you for the heart of the Apostle Paul to teach us these things. For the wonder and mystery of the Spirit leading him along to tell us this so that we have it in Holy Scripture and we in our country have the freedom to come together and to study it together. Open our hearts and our minds to receive these things. For your great honor and glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.